This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. Get what you paid for. The nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. Martin Burnham spent time flying as a crop duster near Imperial, Nebraska. However, his love and mission were to fly to remote airstrips in the Philippines, delivering supplies to missionaries. In the spring of 2001, he and his wife, Gracia, were taken hostage for over a year. Their story is a special Thanksgiving edition of Farming the Countryside, and is brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. We recently finished our corn harvest and picked the corn in our Pivot Bioproven field trial. You'll recall that Pivot Bioproven adheres to the root of the corn plant, creating that mutually beneficial nitrogen-generating partnership that stays strong all the way through harvest. It's a weather-resistant and sustainable way to achieve more predictable and more productive yields than ever before. So, in 2001, we once again conducted a field trial, and this year saw a 7 bushel per acre yield boost compared to the non-treated corn. We also saw a yield boost last year of about 5 bushels per acre. Even more exciting, though, is the opportunity to replace some synthetic nitrogen, since Pivot Bioproven can be a proven source of nitrogen throughout the growing season. Being able to replace that synthetic nitrogen could be the biggest game-changer and put more money in our pockets. That's why we've been doing field trials to learn more, and I hope you'll look into it as well. You can see results and learn more at pivotbio.com. This is Thanksgiving weekend, so I thought it only fitting to pause, say thanks, and reflect on our own lives and the way we show gratitude to others. I've known the story of Martin and Gracia Burnham for many years. I remember hearing about them at our church, but never imagined I might get the chance to interview Gracia about an event that cost the life of her husband and brought her back to the U.S. to share her story of faith with thousands each year. We sat down at her home to take a look back 20 years. Visiting with Gracia Burnham, and Gracia, some people will know you and your story, perhaps some don't. Give me your background growing up in Kansas and, and Martin as well. We're just outside of Wichita, but still what I would consider kind of rural and small town Kansas. Ah, well, Martin's family was from Kansas. His um, dad, when he was a young boy, was in that land rush that went down to Oklahoma, and they went down. They were very poor in Oklahoma, they said, and then came back here to the Wichita area where jobs were plentiful in the aircraft industry. And um, when Martin's dad was older and already had four children, they decided that they wanted to go to the mission field, did some training, and went to the Philippines and moved into a tribal group who'd never had a white person living there. And to get there, you had to hike for days. And uh, that started the Burnhams um, uh, spending a lot of years in the Philippines. I grew up in a pastor's family here in the U.S., so I don't have such an exciting uh, exciting thing to share. But, uh, yeah. Well, Martin was growing up then, and he'd been around the Philippines, but he then loves to fly and ends up with some crop dusting in his background as well. Share about that. Oh, um, well, the Burnhams lived out in the middle of a tribal village where no roads went. And so Martin and his brothers and sisters went to boarding school in Manila, hundreds of miles away. 
and to get home for Christmas breaks and summer holidays, they flew in a small missionary airplane into the mountains. And um, actually, one of their pilots was a farmer, a rancher in Nebraska. So when Martin got ready to graduate from high school, he decided that he wanted to become a missionary pilot and came back here to Kansas and got his flying at the Cessna Flying Club and worked on the Cessna flight line after he got his mechanics rating. Then on summer, during summers, he would fly in Nebraska crop dusting for Steg's Flying Service. And, uh, oh, we just fell in love with the farming life. And that was, in fact, we wanted to stay farming and crop dusting. And uh, Martin said to me one day, Gracia, if we don't leave here, we're going to get sucked in to this com- community. We're never going to leave. If we think God wants us overseas, we better go right now. So so we did and took missionary training and ended up in the Philippines. So at that time, were you in Nebraska when this was going on, crop dusting? We were in Imperial, Nebraska. Oh, how we loved those folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, God had a call, though, to, to send you to the, the Philippines. So where were you? in the Philippines and who were you ministering to there then? We flew for tribal missionaries. Those are missionaries who work out in the middle of nowhere where no roads go. And our organization, New Tribes Mission, works with groups that have never had anyone go in and share the gospel with them. Well, never share anything. You know, medical facilities, they don't read their own language. You just start from ground zero. We were the ones who kept those tribal missionaries supplied. Because think of all the things you buy in a month at your house. That's what we did for 16 years. We did that in the Philippines. Our children were born there, and we loved our job there. Talk about where you were flying into. I've seen pictures of these airstrips, little bitty airstrips in the middle of the jungle. So what Martin's dad did was took a wheelbarrow and a shovel over land and started clearing a mountain. And uh, their their airstrip was 350 feet, I think, straight up the side of a mountain. So, you know, like an e-ticket ride at Disney. <laughs> and um, the the jungle pilots just knew how to land on, on those strips. And, of course, you would think you would land on the end of the strip and get on the brakes, but no, you had to give it full power to get up to the top of the mountain where there was a turnaround. And then once you unloaded or got people on board or whatever you went in there to do, taking off, of course, was instant altitude because you would go out, you know, off the mountain and uh, pictures of that airstrip. Oh, I should say, We don't do airstrips like that anymore. I don't want to get in trouble with our mission agency. (laughs) They would be mad at me if I said that because now, you know, they build proper airstrips with Kubota tractors and stuff like that. But back in the day, I'm old enough that uh, back in the day we... We just did what we could to keep those folks. Our job was to keep them in their villages so they could do what they needed to do. But it was nothing for a crop duster. He knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. He loved what he did. And the guys, of course, he grew up in the Philippines. So a lot of times 
here were these older missionaries getting in the airplane with this kid that they'd seen grown up, this little boy. And some of them came to me and said, boy, by faith, we're getting in that airplane because we remember Martin Burnham when he was a little kid. <laughs> but they called him Mr. Cool. He, you know, just before they landed, he had this little, you know, he would straighten his shoulders and move around in his seat and get ready for the landing and uh, he, yeah, he did that safely, mishap-free for 16 years um, until something really, really weird happened to us, and that was the end of his missionary flying career. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that. 16 years, things had been peaceful, but all of a sudden that changed very quickly for you. Well, in the Philippines, we were very careful. You know, we, we knew what places to avoid. We would watch the hot spots because there were. There were communist guerrillas in the mountains. There were Muslim extremists around, and we knew what places to avoid, and we were very careful. Yeah, we just were in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, taken hostage by militant Muslims. And for the next year, we lived with them um, hiking through the jungles, trying to stay away from the Philippine military, who, of course, were trying to rescue us. And uh, for more than a year, we did that. I don't know how to ask a question. It's one that you've been asked probably a million times of, how do you suddenly deal with a situation in which you are no longer, in a sense, in control? You've been taken hostage. You have no idea how long this might last. How do you begin to wrestle with that situation? And obviously, you're a person of faith. So, how did you begin to handle it? Yeah, well, no one plans on being taken hostage, right? Um, when everything's gone, everything's gone. Yeah, suddenly we were um, running for our lives with bad guys telling us, you know, where to sit, what to eat, don't do that, you know, pee there. <laughs> um, it was just a hard year of, um, physically it was a hard year because we we walked all the time just to stay ahead of the military. So hiking day and night up and down mountains. And, you know, I was a 40-year-old lady who wasn't fit. And I was expected to keep up with these 25-year-old guys who were used to living in the jungle, and I couldn't do it. And often as we went down the trails, I would talk to God, you know, God, I, I need some water. I really need some water. I don't get some water, I'm going to have to sit down and and realize that I was nagging at God, and he knows what I need. And I just always changed my prayer, uh, God, you know what I need right now. Just help me to be patient till you bring it to me. And um, some people would call those mind tricks or whatever, but, um, you know, when you're in a hard spot and there's nothing you can do to get out of it, you suddenly realize that you're not strong enough to handle the problem. The The strong person you were doesn't exist anymore because um, there's nothing you can do. And that's when I think we look up and seek the Lord because he's the one that can take a bad situation and turn it into good. During this time, I think you always thought there was going to be hope of it being released or a ransom being paid. But in the middle of this, we have September 11th, correct? I mean, that happens in the middle of all this, right? It did. You know, some some guys uh, at that September 11th, of course, that didn't mean anything to us that day. But um, they were shooting um, artillery at us from 10 miles away, the 
the military. So we would hear the thump far away, and then we would start counting one, two, three, four, and we would get to ten, and it, sometimes they would explode. The mortars were ex- would explode far away, and sometimes they were kind of near. They were just lobbing them our direction, and we were so discouraged. And two guys that weren't Filipino came into our camp, which was, that had never happened before. They were more Middle Eastern, and um, they stayed with us for several days. Well, they had meetings with the leaders, and um, September 11, uh, one of the leaders had Martin come over and sit down at his hammock with him, and they had a transistor radio that someone had brought in. And Martin was gone for so long that I got sick of being alone, and I went over and sat on the ground with him, and um, they were reporting on the Twin Towers going down. And at that point, they were saying that, you know, thousands had died and our hearts were just um, so sad. And then they turned off the radio and that was it. We never heard anything more. All we knew is this horrible thing had happened in America and then nothing. And the next day, of course, the Abu Sayyaf were rejoicing. (laughs) Um, they pulled one over on America. They were so happy about that. And the next day, we just started hiking and hiked out of there. And after a few days, those strangers were gone. And um, I think they brought in word that that was going to happen. Those guys knew. And um, the FBI have asked me a lot of questions about those two guys. And still call today, actually, 20 years later to see if I've remembered anything that could help them find those men. At one time, you have a ransom paid, and (laughs) you thought perhaps you were going to be free, but I've heard you compare that to the ransom that was paid for you ultimately, and I think that's a unique story. That is. We we always... We knew that someone was going to have to pay a ransom for us because they said, we'll deal with you last. Um, All the other hostages, they took about 20 of us, and the rest were Filipino. Well, I take that back. There was another American businessman from California, and I'm sorry to say they beheaded him um, just like 10 days into our captivity. But um, they always said, we'll deal with you last, and you'll you'll be, there'll be government concessions made for you. And um, we knew that, you know, when the Philippine military would find us, there was never any, it was just indiscriminate shoot up the camp. There was never selective gunfire. And we knew we were in trouble. And we thought, you know, someone needs to ransom us out of here. And I would ask Martin, how can we expect someone to ransom us when we don't believe in that? Um, you know, paying bad guys money. And Martin said, oh, it seems to me if if you can trust the Lord for a million dollars, which is what they were asking, you know, we can trust that not a single firearm or M16 is bought from that million dollars, that it just slips through their fingers. So we, we did. We prayed that someone would pay a ransom for us. And you know what? They did right at the year mark. Someone paid a ransom for us, a wealthy businessman in the Dallas area. And by that time, the group had split, and the CIA knew where we were. The FBI delivered the ransom to 
the group that didn't have us. You know, those two entities don't work together because they don't like each other. <laughs> and um, so the ransom, even the ransom didn't work. It went to the guys that didn't have us and caused, you know, problems even amongst the Abu Sayyaf and jealousy. And we thought, here, the thing we'd been praying for happened and it didn't even work. And we were just at our lowest you mentioned a story of Thanksgiving, and I wanted you to be able to, to be sure to, to share that. Um, yeah, there were so many days in the jungle that we we starved, days and weeks. There was, at the height of our captivity, there were like 125 Abu Sayyaf and 20 hostages. Those are a lot of people in the jungle to feed, and we never had enough food. And uh, it was getting close to Thanksgiving, and... As Martin was praying one day, he said, Lord, it would just be so nice if you would send us something for Thanksgiving. And then we didn't even think about that prayer. Well, our what we didn't know is our mission agency every week had been sending boxes of goodies to us. And people say, you know, how did they do that? Um, I think there was a radio station in the southern Philippines that was sympathetic to the Abu Sayyaf. And... Um, so our mission agency would send a box of stuff for us, and they would announce it on the radio. If you're related to the Abu Sayyaf or you know where they are right now, come get this box. And they would just pass it village to village. And three times boxes made their way into the village. Well, this certain night, we could see that a box had come in and that the guys were pilfering it, right? They were taking what they wanted first. And um, Sabaya brought our box over to us. He said, these are from your friends on the outside, but I had to take that cheese whiz because I really love that stuff. And um, so we were unpacking all these goodies, you know, um, deodorant and um, rubbing alcohol to, you know, clean your hands and um, just goodies and soup packets and salt. And we were so happy. And Martin started making little piles of it because we walked in groups we ate in groups we lived in groups and he made little piles and he started taking a pile to each group of um of abu sayyaf so we could share our abundance and he got back and we were just ooing and awing over all this stuff and it suddenly occurred to us that it was thanksgiving day it hadn't even god had answered our prayer he sent some box who knows the story that box could tell? And he sent it to us so we would get it on Thanksgiving Day. And, um, of course, on Martin's mind was, let's share this. It, that's just how he was. You know, he was such a nice guy, and everybody really loved him. And um, It's been 20 years. Tell people what you do today. Is it still just delivering that message? Is that uh, your work today? Yeah, it's an old story, and that's what I tell people. I'm surprised you still want to hear my story, but I stay busy traveling and just telling it. And um, Yeah, yeah, that's what I do today, 20 years later. And, um, you know, often people come up to me and say, you know, uh, here's my story. It doesn't compare at all with you. And it can be anywhere from some guy that was over in Afghanistan that has... PTSD now and his family is suffering right along with him because of that or someone who's lost a loved one or 
someone who was abused and and they say you know how do you get past this i've learned that when you when you go through a hard time you want to hear the stories of people who've gone through that hard time and have come out on the other end triumphant stories stories are really important and every time I get sick of packing the bags and driving and flying and another airport and I just want to go get a normal job and be normal, I think, you know, these stories, it's important to tell your story. And we all have those. We all have stories of going through a hard time and seeing God just show up for us. And we need to ter- tell our stories well, even if you think your story is not an important story it is because you don't know what the person beside you is bearing you know we're all just trying our hardest to make life work and it's and it's not great for anybody and we all have these little facades that everything's okay at my house well it's it's not they have a dirty garage just like you do and they don't have a perfect family and they've got that weird situation in their family. And I don't know, they've got a loved one in prison or, you know, we're all just the same and we need to share our stories with one another and encourage each other to keep going, keep, keep trusting the one who made you with this life, whatever it's throwing at you. Truly an amazing story and experience from 20 years ago that in a sense lives on and the message, you know, lives on forever. One person can change things. You're not a nobody. Um, And God uses weak things. I used to wonder why I came home from the jungle. Uh, Why didn't the strong one, Martin, come home? Because he was the one that always kept our minds right, you know, and and kept us in a good, good spot mentally. And the strong one died in a gun battle. And the weak one came home to tell the story and several places in scripture it talks about how God doesn't use the the wise and the mighty he often uses the weak and I wonder if he does that because then when people see what happens they know God did it because everybody knows I didn't have the strength to live for a year in the jungle God did that everybody knows that I'm a ditzy blonde and I don't know what I'm doing but when I travel and speak, people say, oh, God did that. And then he gets the glory, which is the whole point, right? That's the point of our lives anyway. Yeah, God can use anyone. The weak things. He uses weak things. Let him use your weakness. <laughs> you still speak several different places. And you have a couple of books that help share that story too. Tyndale helped me write in the presence of my enemies, a New York Times bestseller of all things. Who would have thought? I knew my mom would buy one and her friends, but never did I know that people were so interested. And I think 9-11 helped push that book um, to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And it tells the story of our being held hostage that year and then Tyndale asked for another book and I said I don't have anything else to say I said it all and they said oh why don't you tell us how God changed you in the jungle what happened in your heart well that was easy you know just um and they're little short chapters and just and a lot of women use that book for like 
Bible studies and stuff. To Fly Again is the second book. So, Thank you for your time and thank you for your faithfulness. You're welcome. It's been nice to talk with you today. My visit with Gracia was longer than what you've heard here, but time constraints force one to make edits to fit our window. However, I'm posting the full interview at FarmingTheCountryside.com on Facebook. In the longer interview, Gracia speaks more about her Christian faith and how that impacted her time in captivity and her life after losing her husband. You can connect with her at GraciaBurnham.org. And on this Thanksgiving edition of our show, I not only say thank you to Gracia and our many guests, but also pause to say thank you to the folks who make our broadcast happen. And so to Tom Brandt, Joe Stackler, Chrissy Reinert, Alexa Hunzecker, Tom DeLac, who edit, handle social media, work with affiliates, and much more. Plus, to all the Farm Journal staff, to the stations who allow us to bring these shows to you, and to my family and God above, thank you. I'm but one person, and these folks and many more allow this to happen. And I hope you, too, will take time to say thanks and perhaps say a prayer, just as the Burnhams did for their answered prayer on a Thanksgiving 20 years ago in the jungle. Thank you for joining me. I'm Andrew McRae. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bioproven. Get what you paid for, the nitrogen that stays put, whether or not. Learn more at pivotbio.com.